Thanks for downloading Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon, Amazon Booklist, Coffee, and Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those things can be found either in the show notes or over on the website at darkhistories.com. Of course, just continuing to spread the word about the show on social media, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends is also a huge help. So thank you to everyone for all that. All right, enough of this. Let's crack on with the episode. Sir, when you can spare room in your gazette, I think you will not be able to present your readers with an account so extraordinary and surprising as the following. So began the letter written to the printer of the Bristol Gazette from the Reverend William Robert Wake in the summer of 1788. The account he wrote of was one of possession and exorcism that would spark a controversy and ignite bitter debate over belief versus non-belief, enlightenment versus superstition, and materialism versus spiritual salvation. As the debates raged on, the facts fell by the wayside, leaving readers with a story of demonic possession or absurd play-acting, depending on individual outlook. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello, thank you for downloading. Welcome to Dark Histories. This is season three, episode 22, I do believe. It's November already. The nights are really drawing in now. It's pretty crazy how fast the year's gone. I'm Ben, and this week we've got a pretty cool episode about possession, but it's not the usual downer of a possession uh, that, that you tend to find, so I quite like it. Before we start, I've just got a quick couple of things to say. Firstly, since it is already November, which is really scary, uh, uh, I'll be taking my usual December off. So start getting out now, I guess, for the Christmas special, which is mad that I'm talking about Christmas now. But the Christmas special of Dark Issues is only like going to be another two or three episodes before that happens. So yeah, if you want to get your story in for the Christmas campfire, the annual Christmas campfire episode please go ahead and do so. Uh, If you've never listened to a Christmas campfire episode before, basically, the idea is you send your story to me, I narrate it. The story can be pretty much anything as long as it kind of fits with the Dark Histories theme. It usually seems to be kind of like ghost stories, things like that. That's kind of what we pushed for in the past. But really, you know, if you've got some sort of weird, strange story that you, you want to tell, get in touch and I'll narrate it. Failing that, we've got a phone number now. You could even just leave your story on that and I could include some some of those if, if, if we get any of those. But yeah, normally if you can write the story down and I'll narrate it, that's the way we roll. The first year was pretty great. The second year was even better. Last year was a really fantastic uh, year for it. So this year I'm hoping that we get even better since we've got, you know, the, the show grows year on year. So fingers crossed. And I really do enjoy reading your submissions for it. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And say, it's not going to be coming out until probably, I think, normally release it around about Christmas Eve or, or, or the day after Christmas, like Boxing Day. But, you know, it's, it's I do need to get it out now. Um, so, yeah, you've got, got a while to get, get your submissions into me. I'll probably close the submissions off 
sort of a, a few days before Christmas, but I'll I'll speak more about that at the last episode of the season. So for now, just yeah, if if you've got a story you want to get it in, get it in early, then help yourself. Send it in. Contact at darkhistories.com. As usual, just want to say thank you to all the patrons. Uh, the support's been amazing throughout the year. Uh, it's really helped in a few occasions. And of course, all the new patrons, as always, Rahima, Shashi, Jessica, Ashley, Alex, Jennifer, Kat, Dan, the People's Republic of Woodfin, Martin, Liz, Ryan, Gwen, Andy and Tony. Thank you so much. Uh, it's really, uh, really appreciated. So thank you very much. And that's about it. We can kind of crack on with the episode. So let's get going. This is the Yatin demoniac, George Lukens. The latter half of the 18th century in England is a fascinating transitionary period in social history, teetering on the edge of modern materialism, an age-old superstition, belief flip-flop between rural and urban life, the rich and the poor, and those who felt dismay at the lack of spiritual well-being, and those who found solace instead in the growing understanding of chemistry in the natural world. Although tempting, it is a period impossible to reduce to simple black and white belief systems. Those who saw themselves as enlightened were often not as atheistic as one might imagine, and those who were actively working within the church were mired in just as many arguments concerning religious philosophy. The freedom of rational inquiry had tossed the century into a mishmash of thoughts, theories and ideas. Born in 1743, George Lukens lived in Yatton, a small parish in the English county of Somerset, some 10 miles southwest from Bristol and 15 miles directly west of Bath. In the latter half of the 18th century, the entire parish of Yatton housed a population of only around 3,000 people. The main village ruptured from the sprawling green fields and hedgerows of rural North Somerset. George Lukens made his trade as a tailor in the village. Well judged by the locals, he was a man of extraordinary good character who had been a vigilant member of the church-going community for most of his life. Though technically he trained as a tailor, he was better known locally as a mummer, an actor in a local folk troupe who performed throughout the year, acting out both folk plays and Christmas nativities for the local church. His early life is more or less a mystery, a testament to the unspectacular nature of rural life for the average person. However, by 1769, things began to slide out of the realm of normalcy for George, as his life began trading away anonymity for a footnote in dusty regional texts and a story of the absolute bizarre. During the Christmas season of 1769, George Lukens was performing the nativity for the local church with his troop of mummers in the village of Yatton. One night after performing for a local house owned by Mr Love, his acting group had chosen to drink with the host, engaging with his well-known hospitality. The love's enthusiasm for drink and good tidings was fairly extreme, as Lukens and the troop reportedly got so drunk on the strong-bottled beer that they were drinking that one member was taken home ill by 10pm. Later that night, as they took to leave, Luskins fell over whilst trying to walk out of Mr Love's house, knocking himself out cold. When he came to, he swore that he had been hit violently in the head 
and it was the blow that had sent him to the ground rather than the drink. After he finally recovered, he was escorted home by two of his neighbours, a Mr Avery and a Mr Reed, both of whom were also quite drunk by this point, and the three men drunkenly sang in the street all the way. The next day, George awoke with what was probably a dreadful hangover. Much worse, he had seemingly taken to falling into fits. The fits would start with a violent shaking in his right hand that would spread to muscle spasms in his face and eventually his whole body. It is at this point that things begin to get a little weird. The influence of the fit has then commenced. He declares in a roaring voice that he is the devil who with many execrations summons about him certain persons devoted to his will and commands them to torture this unhappy patient with all the diabolical means in their power. If announcing oneself as the devil sounds strange, he would then burst into song, singing folk songs in both male and female voices, sing hymns of the Te Deum backwards, make various animal noises, including barking like a dog, violently contort his body, and threw himself around the room, oftentimes hitting his head hard into the floor. When religious expressions or prayers were heard, Lukins would blurt out torrents of blasphemy and outrage, screaming as if in pain. In the various documents written by witnesses to these fits, several state that he appeared driven to madness by any act of religion within his presence. The demon then concludes the ceremony by declaring his unalterable resolution to punish him forever, and after breaking fiercely and interspersing many assertions of his own diabolical dignity, the fit subsides into the same strong agitation of the hand that introduced it and the patient recovers from its influence, utterly weakened and exhausted. These fits were not simple, quick affairs either. On average, they tended to last around an hour each, and he was witness to suffering from them up to seven times a day, every day of the week, and from 7am to 11pm. Eventually, assistants were brought in by the church to help him avoid injuring himself, holding him down while he attempted to throw himself into the floor, walls and furniture. Throughout the entire affair, his eyes remained closed, but he appeared fairly lucid, able to understand people who spoke to him, and even on occasion responding to questions from curious onlookers. Despite these fits, which continued for several years, Lukins did somehow manage to continue a halfway normal existence, continuing to work in between bouts of fits, which would incapacitate him for several months at a time, then leave him for equal periods. Throughout, the local church did attempt to help him with medical visits, and eventually they covered all the fees and sent him to St George's Hospital in Middlesex on 3rd of May 1775, under the supervision of a Mr Avery, who attended him on the journey to ensure he did not hurt himself or fall to fits on the way. Lukin stayed in St George's Hospital under close medical supervision until his discharge on the 8th of October of the same year. Whilst in hospital, a physician who visited him frequently claimed that he never once saw Lukins fall into fits and he was eventually diagnosed as a hypochondriac and dismissed as incurable. Later, in a letter written in reply to a sceptic who contacted the hospital to ask after Lukins' time at St George's, the doctors confirmed that although exact records were never kept of patients' specific diagnosis, as the three members of staff who were working at the hospital during his stay, the apothecary, chaplain and surgeon, 
none could remember seeing him fall into fits of any kind. Nevertheless, upon his return to Somerset, Lukins once again slipped into the familiar cycle of months with regular fits, followed by periods of calm. The fits were getting no less bizarre, and still he would spend hours on end convulsing violently, swearing at religious figures, and singing and talking in both male and female voices. The church continued their supply of care for the aggrieved Lukins, with doctors from Rinkton, Bristol and Blackwell all attempting to cure his fits. One prescribed him heavy doses of laudanum to absolutely no beneficial effect. He bounced around homes within Yatton and the surrounding area, living for a time with his brother, who acted as assistant and carer until he was unable to handle the situation, promptly passing him off to the next in line. This may have sounded harsh, but it was in fact Lucan's brother who was affording him such care in the first place. Well known and in good standing throughout the village of Yatton, sympathy for George Lucan's brother, who himself suffered due to his brother's condition, brought him a lot of patience and restraint from locals who perhaps saw his condition as little more than fakery. Throughout this period, Lukins began to blame witchcraft for his struggles, sure that some infirm old person had bewitched him. Eventually, Lukins' fits did begin to fade as the bouts of calm between periods of fitting gradually stretched out longer and longer, until finally, he seemed to be clear from all of his past troubles for several years. Life almost seemed back to normal for George, but then, in 1787, his fits returned, and this time, they came with a more assured self-diagnosis. Lukens was, he confidently told doctors and clergymen, possessed by seven demons, one of whom was the devil himself. Fortunately, this great insight into the fits for George also came with a cure, He needed to be visited by seven clergymen to cast out the demonic presence within him. Luckily for Lukens, there were people in the local area who were sympathetic to his plight and who were more than willing to exercise the demonic presence that so plagued him. During the spring of 1788, Lukens was living in Yatton, however his story was slowly spreading throughout the region. A member of the Temple Church in Bristol named Sarah Barber to come to know of his story through her husband, who had grown up in Yatton. Becoming aware that he was still suffering, she approached the vicar of the church, Reverend Joseph Easterbrook, on the 31st of May, 1788, in order to seek his help in the matter and asked him to visit Yatton to see what he could do. Reverend Easterbrook agreed to meet with Lukens to determine the veracity of the possession claim. Whilst not overly keen to venture out to Yatton, however, Reverend Easterbrook instead agreed to house Lukens in Bristol, and so, on the 7th of June, 1788, Lukens travelled to Bristol, staying in Redcliffe Street with a Mr Jasper Westcott under the care of Easterbrook, who on several occasions watched over his fits to determine whether or not he believed them to be demonic in nature. Eventually, he called on a small group of local clergymen to determine their next move. He himself had decided already that the case was fit for the church's attention, and so he held a meeting in the temple church with three other priests, the Reverend Richard Symes, rector of St. Westburg, Reverend James Brown, the rector of Portishead, and Reverend Dr. Robbins, the pre-centre of Bristol Cathedral. The meeting did not quite go to plan, 
Though all three men agreed with Easterbrook that the affliction hanging over Lukens was of a supernatural nature, they declined to attend any meeting of prayer alongside Easterbrook in an attempt to cure the problem. They essentially denied him any aid in an exorcism in the name of the Church of England. Instead, Easterbrook contacted John Wesley, the leader of the Methodist movement in England. Whilst Wesley himself declined to participate in the planned exorcism, the exposure of the case in the local press and the perceived urgency from contacting Wesley did conclude with the signing up of six other Methodist clergymen who agreed to partake in the ritual. Preparations were made within the Methodist church and on Friday the 13th of May 1778, the seven priests gathered in the vestry room of the temple church in Bristol to carry out their exorcism upon the demons that possessed George Lukens. Alongside Reverend Joseph Easterbrook stood Reverend John Broadbent of Oxford, Reverend John Valton of Bristol, Reverend Benjamin Rhodes of Keeley, Reverend Thomas McGeary of Bristol, Reverend Jeremiah Brettel of Lynn, and Reverend William Hunt of Westcott. The seven men were also joined by eight assistants, two of which were allotted the duty of holding down Lukens should he fall into violent fits. It was 11am when the ritual finally got underway and was prefaced by the singing of hymns thought proper for the situation. In a little time, the fit came out in the usual way, but his agitations, distortions, etc. grew stronger and stronger till they became more dreadful than ever they appeared before. He was demanded by one of the ministers present, as the voice of them all, in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Ghost, who he was, but no reply. He was asked a second time, but no answer. It was urged again. He then grinned and with a horrible voice exclaimed, I am the devil. He was then asked why he tormented this man. He answered, to shew my power among men. Immediately on which he was strangely convulsed and endeavoured to kick at a person who was near him, but was prevented by the exertions of two men who were obliged to hold him during the time. He foamed at the mouth. His face was distorted to a degree beyond description. His body was thrown into different forms, and after some violent throes, he spake in a deep, hoarse, hollow voice, calling the man to an account and upbraiding him as a fool for bringing that silly company together. He said it was to no purpose and swore by his infernal den that he would never quit his hold of him, but would torment him a thousand times worse for making this vain attempt. The voice of the demoniac was then compelled to sing in his usual manner. Afterwards, he blasphemed, boasted of his power and vowed eternal vengeance on the miserable object and on those present for daring to oppose him and commanded his faithful and obedient servants to appear and take their stations. He then spake in a female voice, very expressive of scorn and derision, and demanded to know why the tool had brought such a company there and swore by the devil that he would not quit his hold of him and bid defiance to and cursed all who should attempt to rescue the miserable object from them. He then sung in the same female voice a kind of love song, at the conclusion of which he was violently tortured and repeated most horrid imprecations. Another invisible agent came forth, assuming a different voice, but his manner much the same as the preceding one. A kind of dialogue was then sung in a hoarse and soft voice alternately, at the conclusion of which, as before, the man was thrown into violent agony and blasphemed in a manner 
too dreadful to be expressed. He then personated and said, I am the devil, and after much boasting of his power and bidding defiance to all his opposers, sung a kind of hunting song, at the conclusion of which he was most violently tortured, so that it was with difficulty that two strong men could hold him, though he is but a small man and very weak in constitution. Sometimes he would set up a hideous laugh, and at other times bark in a manner indescribably horrid. After this he summoned the host of infernals to appear and drive the company away, and while the ministers were engaged in fervent prayer, he sung a te deum to the devil in different voices, saying, We praise thee, O devil, we acknowledge thee to be the supreme governor, etc., etc. When the noise was so great as to obstruct the company proceeding in prayer, they sang together a hymn suitable to the occasion. Whilst they were in prayer, the voice which personated the devil bid them defiance, cursing and vowing dreadful vengeance on all present. The poor man still remained in great agonies and torture, and prayer was continued for his deliverance. A clergyman present desired him to endeavour to speak the name of Jesus, and several times repeated it to him, at all of which he replied, Devil. During this attempt, a small faint voice was heard saying, why don't you adjure? On which the clergyman commanded, in the name of Jesus, and in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the evil spirit to depart from the man which he repeated several times, when a voice was heard to say, Must I give up my power? And this was followed with dreadful howlings. Soon after, another voice, as with astonishment, said, Our master has deceived us. The clergyman still continuing to repeat the adjuration, a voice was heard to say, Where shall we go? And the reply was, To hell, thine own infernal den, and return no more to torment this man. On this, the man's agitations and distortions were stronger than ever, attended with the most dreadful howling that can be conceived. But as soon as this conflict was over, he said in his own natural voice, Blessed Jesus, he became quite serene, immediately praised God for his deliverance, and kneeling down said the Lord's Prayer, and then sang the 67th Psalm. At last the ordeal for Lukins, which had lasted for over 18 years, was apparently over. The ordeal for the people involved, however, was just about to begin. In the run-up to the exorcism of George Lukins in the vestry room of the Temple Church in Bristol, the story had already hit the local press around Somerset mainly through the local paper, the Bristol Gazette. For a period, it did manage to fly under the radar, but by the time of the exorcism itself, it just started to bleed out into the national papers, through both syndication of stories and unique editorial pieces. By the end of June, it was quickly becoming something of a national scandal, helped along in no small part by the publication of pamphlets that documented the event by Reverend Wake of Yatton and Reverend Easterbrook himself. The 23rd of June saw the first stories printed concerning the case on a national scale. The very extraordinary circumstances of the case of George Lukins, a poor man of Yatton in Somerset, who has been dreadfully afflicted with fits at short intervals for 18 years past, during which he was constantly declared that he was the devil, uttering the same time many horrible expressions, and who was delivered from his disorder on Friday the 13th instant at Bristol, seem likely to engage very much the attention of the public. We hear it was the opinion of the poor afflicted man, 
in his intervals of reason, that his seven pious clergymen of the Church of England were to use spiritual endeavours for his deliverance from his malady, he should be cured. Accordingly, he was later carried to Bristol with a view to receive, if possible, the benefit of the spiritual endeavours of some pious ministers of the gospel. The Reverend Easterbrook and six others, whose names we have not yet learned, being persuaded that it was a case of diabolical possession, solemnly offered up their prayers in Temple Church for his deliverance. During the time of service, on this occasion, the crowd assembled to be spectators of so extraordinary an event was very great. On the second day of intercession, Mr. Easterbrook is said to have risen up and solemnly commanded the evil spirits in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Ghost to depart out of this unhappy demoniac and return from whence they came. Our account, which we give as serious and authenticated, says in substance that the pious endeavours thus used have been so far blessed, that the poor man is really delivered from the distressful state in which he was lived in for so long a period and is now calmly and deeply thankful for so great a providential a deliverance. He immediately joined in the praise of Jesus, a name which he could not repeat, nor even hear before, without blaspheming, howling, and making the most horrible and tremendous noises. A very circumstantial relation of this extraordinary case, and of the proceedings in the church at the time the poor man was relieved from his afflictions, will be given in the next county magazine, which will be published on Tuesday the 1st of July in which also will be given Mr. Vag's ingenious plan, which he has now communicated, for the preservation and improvement of the culture of turnips, and for effectually preserving them for the depredations of the fly, slug, and other insects. Price, threepence. Perhaps the bizarre segue into slug repellent was a clue as to how serious the public should take the story in such a stage of infancy with regards to factual information. But if that was the case... It was certainly well ignored. The crowds that had gathered by the Temple Church at the time of the exorcism and the many readers of the Bristol Gazette were already running with the story in the local streets, spreading rumour and gossip like wildfire, and by its next mention in the national papers, it was a tale decidedly more fantastical. A tailor by name George Lukens, the second edition of the Cock Lane Fanny, has alarmed all the religious people about Bristol of late. It seems he has been possessed of seven devils for 18 years, which were lately cast out of him by seven clergymen. Every clergyman fought his devil most manfully for two hours, when, by dint of praying and singing, they were all kicked out of the pericranium of the poor tailor, and he went home in a renovated state of mind. The above seven persons are called by all the Bristol wits, the devilishly clever clergymen that banged all the infernals out of the tailor's hell. It seems these imps got first into the tailor's brain when he was a strolling player. This has somewhat affected the theatre, especially the galleries, as the sanctified Bristol Canal are afraid, on entering the unhallowed spot, that they shall be possessed with as many devils as George Lukens. The better sort of people, however, set him down as an artful imposter. The story may have been tongue-in-cheek and wholly sensational, but it contained two relatively interesting pieces of information. The first was to recall the case of the Cock Lane Ghost, a case which had wrapped up in recent memory and had caused a huge nationwide scandal when a haunted house in central London that had been home to a seance group had ended in murder and fraud. The second was the final, rather blunt line that suggested that the better sort of people 
so too believe George Lucan's case to be fraudulent. While seemingly throwaway in this story, for anyone following the story more closely, it was quite some understatement. As it happened, a debate had been raging throughout Bristol and in the local Gazette for weeks already. In the local Bristol area, the case of George Lucan's exorcism had caused much more controversy than the national papers were letting on, and the disputes and debates were in full swing. Back in the 18th and 19th centuries, newspapers would often include communications sent to the editor of a paper from the readership, and such letters were often highly charged. Sometimes they pointed out errors with a particular story, whilst others just voiced concerns or opinions on a given subject. At times, when a topic was hotly debated, the papers would continue to print replies back and forth between readers, displaying a full debate for all to see that could go on for months at a time. Oftentimes, with weeks in between rebuttals and replies. The case of George Lucas had apparently stirred a viper's nest of opinions, and as such, letters were flooding into the editor of the Bristol Gazette at a fair clip. Within this very public form of debate, three distinct camps were being formed based on three very different theories. In the first camp, the theory held that Lucas was telling the truth and that he had been possessed and successfully exercised of seven demons, just as Easterbrook and co. had written of it. On the flip side, the second camp believed Lucas to simply be a fraudster and a liar, carrying out a deception for over 18 years and fooling those around him, some more so than others. The third camp lay somewhere in between, believing Lucas to a degree, or at least, they believed him not to be a liar, However, their theory focused around his fits and blamed the strange phenomena in medical science with most suggesting epilepsy as the cause. As is probably expected, the most vocal camp was that of the unbelievers, those that thought that Lukens was a fraud and had been leading people at the garden path for 18 long years. The debates quickly became bitter with reasonably high stakes laid out on all sides. For the enlightened, or those that sought rationality in all things, the exorcism was a backslide into a supernatural age where verifiable fact and science was discarded in favour of religious faith. Whilst on the religious front, the case both bolstered belief in the Gospels and signalled a victory for the Methodist Church, which opposed the authority of the established institutions at the time and was slowly embroiling itself in a battle of beliefs with the Church of England. One of the most outspoken opponents to Easterbrook's take on events was Samuel Norton, a surgeon from Yatton who had known Lukens and his case for many years. He had actually lived with Lukens at an earlier point and took him under his medical care for a period. Norton was firmly of the opinion that he was just a simple fraudster and wrote to the papers to express this in no uncertain terms. In June of 1770, I settled in Yatton, for some time lodged with this man, so that I had frequent opportunities to see him in his fits. In every one which, except in singing, he performed not more than most active young people can easily do. I accept singing for this reason, because many had neither an ear for music nor knowledge of notes, but from his youth this man was, as it were, bred to singing. Allowing for his increase of years, I have not known him to look better than at the present time, and if walking between 20 and 30 miles in 7 or 8 hours is not a full proof 
of his strength, which he has done very lately, I wish to know what will or can be deemed such. With equal truth is the assertion made of his keeping eyes fast during his fits, but he takes care frequently to peep or slyly to squint at his wife's visitors. The late pious Mr. Wake, our vicar, soon looked upon his pretenses with due contempt, and I hope this plain account of the subject will prevent the honest and well-meaning from being deceived by groundless pretenses. Norton also claimed that Lucan's many contortions, though unusual, were down to nothing but Lucan's own determination. What followed was a torrent of bitter debate from several writers, signing their pen names with dramatic flair such as Deutati Vindex, Anti-Fanatic and Amicus, though it does seem highly likely that these pen names served a purpose more than simple dramatics. They also concealed the fact that many of the writers were, according to Norton, Reverend Easterbrook under false names in an attempt to bolster his arguments, standing up for the account of Lucan's possession and exorcism. The communications quickly turned bitter, with writers calling one or the other's accounts gross nonsense and willful misinterpretations of the truth. The papers eventually began to draw back their coverage of the story, with most deciding to leave the truth to the reader's own decision. Meanwhile, throughout the same period, Reverend Easterbrook was pushing for his quest of truth on the ground. He had scripted a certificate of authenticity and had passed it to Reverend Westcott and Hunt to take it door to door around the village of Yatton, asking people to sign the document, stating that Lukens's case was entirely factual. The certificate did not go down overly well, nor achieve much, as no one agreed to sign and eventually Westcott and Hunt withdrew, with the whole campaign judged as a failure. By September, the savage correspondences were slowly becoming replaced by letters of the public, calling for an end to the squabbling and pleading simply for the facts. With none forthcoming, the papers dropped the story entirely, and the case of George Lukens slipped instead to the hands of the satirists. The controversy has been managed on both sides in a manner and with spirits so different that the cloven foot is discernible in almost every line. Once the satirists had had their own fun with the story, December saw the case of George Lukens quietly fade into the dusty pages of Somerset history, with no conclusions given and no facts settled. Lukens himself seemed to return to a quiet life in Yatton, though there are records that he claimed financial relief from the church in 1788 and then went on to live as a beggar in Bristol, suggesting that his return to life as a tailor had not been as smooth as he may have hoped. George Lukens died in 1805. His obituary in the local Somerset papers afforded him the headline, once a subject of popularity as a demoniac. Monday, Fen night, George Lukens, late of Yatton, he had for a great length of time been an outpatient at the Bristol Infirmary for a bad leg and hypochondriacal affection. He was reduced to beggary and picked up a subsistence by the sale of little books and the contributions of those who remembered his marvellous history. He lived latterly with the famous fortune-telling woman of Bedminster, now deceased, into whose money-getting trade he appears to have initiated. It would, no doubt, be matter of surprise if such a man could die in such a house, surrounded by spells and incantations, without something preternatural attending his departure. 
The good people who saw him breathe his last assert that he barked like a dog most vehemently and that the howlings and lamentations, we presume exultations, of seven demons who were exercised in the vestry room of Temple Parish some years ago and laid in the Red Sea were so terrible that the people could scarce bear the noise. All the candles burned blue and nothing but a plentiful supply of gin and scotch snuff could possibly have overcome the sulphurous exultations which pervaded the chamber and had preserved the delicate nerves of the ladies who assembled on the terrible occasion. As time passed, the case managed to crop up now and then, and each time with a different theory. In 1820, a London magazine called The Whole Affair an abominable farce that had brought established religion into contempt. Four years later, the Mirror newspaper claimed that Lukens' body and mind had been distorted by epilepsy, and in 1832, the Christian Observer claimed that Lukens himself had admitted the whole thing a fakery on his deathbed. Still, almost 60 years on, it seemed no one could make up their minds as to the facts of the case and which, if any, of the established elements of the story could be relied upon. One of the most difficult elements to explain for the unbelievers seemed to be Lukin's motives for playing out the fraud, as no theories were seemingly ever suggested. Lukin's was, according to them, simply a fraud, and that was the important fact of the day, with no need to elucidate on the whys and wherefores of the matter. When considering it today, however, it seems a glaring omission that degrades the strength of their argument. Why would Lukin's play out such a long, drawn-out fraud for what was essentially no gain. His only profit, if it could be called such a thing, were the medical visits that were paid for by the church. His brother, who was deemed a man of good standing in the area, apparently suffered quite severely from his brother's reputation as a demoniac, so it seemed reasonable to assume that Lucan's reputation would have suffered equally, if not more so, as demonstrated by the fact that he ended his life as a beggar, despite having a good trade as a tailor. If, on the other hand, he had been suffering from epilepsy, how had he managed to maintain such long periods of calm between bouts of fits? Whilst clusters of seizures are a medically recognised form of epilepsy, usually the clusters are condensed into a much shorter time frame, and the overriding hallmark of the disorder is still the spontaneity and unpredictability of fits. If it truly was epilepsy, one would normally assume them to have had a much greater effect on Lukin's overall health too. However, it seems even during his bouts of seizures, though some remarked him as emaciated, others pointed out that he appeared perfectly healthy. Lastly, if it was epilepsy, how was he able to remain lucid throughout his fits, even answering questions on occasion? And so we are left to ask if Lukens was simply possessed by some kind of supernatural force. It goes without saying that there is no solid evidence to suggest he was, other than the words and opinions of those religious men that already were in a position of belief to begin with. Though the Reverend Easterbrook tells us at the end of his pamphlet that Lukens was delivered from his suffering at the end of the exorcism, even his final years are wide open to debate, with no confident data on whether or not he ever fully recovered from his fits or not. Finally, we are left with a fascinating story that lies as a footnote in Somerset County history, all but nearly forgotten. Was his story, as signed by several members of the church, a true and faithful account, 
or one of fraud and gross nonsense, as claimed by the dissenters? Or was George Lukens perhaps simply a prankster, or more tragically, a man suffering a debilitating disorder, caught in the crossfire of a bitter clash of beliefs, in a time when the stakes of such debates were far higher than the possibilities of what was true and what was false? So that was the story of George Lukens, the exorcism and possession, which I really liked because for once it didn't end in a tragic and sad tale of abuse. So yeah, it kind of, although you know it didn't have a great super happy ending, but anyway, we'll talk about that a bit more. Actually, we don't have adverts this week because this week I have another promo for you guys and it's from a podcaster called Daniel, who's also a listener of Dark Histories, which is super cool. And he basically contacted me. He started a podcast um, and asked me if I'd play a promo, which of course I will, because absolutely, why not? And I think it would probably be of interest. It's historical, true crime, and sort of like dark history, but it's specific to Vermont, uh, the area of Vermont in America. But the stories are really great. I I mean, I I don't even, this is going to show my ignorance. I don't even know where Vermont is. I think it's near Massachusetts, I hope. (laughs) I promise I've not looked that up. So I'm either going to get people telling me, yes, I'm correct, or telling me I'm an ignorant idiot. But yeah, anyway, it's it's all around the Vermont area, but so I I don't know where that is or not, and I still enjoyed listening to it when I gave it a listen. So yeah, this is uh, Daniel's podcast is called These Dark Mountains. So have a listen to his promo. And then if you think it's up the street, go give it a download. Support Daniel. He's a listener. Why not? He's one of us. March 12th, 1906. In Brattleboro, Vermont, a young woman drowns herself in the ice-choked Connecticut River. It is 24 years to the day, very nearly to the hour, since her father murdered her mother and grandmother at a remote farmhouse in the hills above Waterbury Center. Elsewhere, a three-year-old child vanishes from an isolated logging community. A prosperous farmer is beaten to death in his own doorway, and a 16-year series of break-ins and burglaries bedevils the small town of Chester. Welcome to These Dark Mountains, a podcast exploring Vermont crime and forgotten history. Available now on your podcatcher of choice and at the website thesedarkmountains.com. Okay, so the story of George Lukens, pretty weird, right? I, I really liked it for a lot of reasons, actually. I say, firstly, I really liked it just because it was a case of exorcism and, and demonic possession that didn't just descend into what what are often just really brutal cases of uh, abuse and torture. So so that was good. I, I like that. But I also like the fact that outside of demonic possession, which is obviously interesting in itself, all of the, the, the time that it was set in and all of the kind of politic that was surrounding it was, was equally as interesting. You had the people that, you know, were going on about enlightenment and, and being, you know, rational thought and and sort of discrediting, or, or not discrediting, but uh, sort of distancing themselves from 
sort of fundamentalist principles of religion. And and then you had, on the other hand, you know, the Methodists and the, their kind of ruck with the Church of England. And, the, and so that was really interesting. I, I really liked what was going on there. But yeah, to, to talk about the exorcism, I mean, the very first thing that I thought of, of course, my sceptical mind always kind of tends to jump to how and why. So, so how, I mean, I don't think it was that much of a challenge for him to act. He, he That was his thing, right? He was an actor. Uh, I think it was, was it Samuel Norman said that, you know, he was born to sing or bred to sing or whatever he said. So, yeah, you know, I do think he could have been putting it on. And I don't find any of that, like a lot of the stuff that was written about, I don't think it was that extreme. Like there wasn't any super mad imagery that you hear in a lot of the old cases of possession. There, there was nothing overly extreme. He was basically just contorting himself around and throwing himself about and talking in different voices, which, that, that, I mean, the talking in different voices is a little bit hard to know because was he just putting those voices on or or, or but how different were the female voices? Was it just a man putting on a female voice or talking in an effeminate way or or was it genuinely a female voice coming out of him? So, so you never really know. But I mean, I, I don't think it was out of the realm of possibility that he was just putting everyone on, right? I think that's obviously one of the first things you want to jump to. But if that is the case you then have to sort of ask why. And it really didn't seem to profit him in any way, shape or form. It's it's only really hinted at how much it damaged the family in, this, in the newspapers. You never really hear about it. It's, it's all kind of, I suppose, you've got to read between the lines a little bit. Uh, but it sounds like it was really giving his brother issues, um, you know, being related to him. It sounded like his brother who, yeah, I mean, most people tend spoke very highly of his brother. In fact, they spoke very highly of George Lukens before this started happening as well. But most people seem to speak quite highly of his brother. And then you've got to think that this, so this didn't really benefit, you know, their reputations in any way in this village. And the fact that he ended up a beggar when he was a tailor, that, that for me is, is the most telling part. I mean, if you're a tailor in the 18th century, I mean, that, that's a trade, right? That's probably a good job. You know, it's a good income, I would have thought. So the fact that he ended a beggar, I mean, that's not super unusual either, I wouldn't have thought, but it, it, it sort of shows that he didn't profit anyway. And, and, and if anything, it, it had a, a negative impact on his life. So that makes me think that he wasn't really having people on. And I, and I think that's quite a strong argument against him having people on, you know, and just being a straight fraudulent mama <laughs> or, or whatever it was. You know, I, I think he was probably, um, I think it was a bit more than that. So then you kind of led, to, okay, was it perhaps epilepsy? And, and that was interesting. I, I don't, I'm not going to pretend I'm a medical man, you know. Like I, I do look these things up, and but but it's but I'm limited to Google really because I'm 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 not, you know, I have no idea. And I did find these things. Um, I found a couple of studies, like medical studies, that were like peer reviewed and everything that that were talking about um, cluster fits and how you can have like a cluster of fits and then a space of because basically his fits seem to be sort of months apart where he would go through like months 
of having fits and then months of not having fits or even like years, you know. So, and so I looked up these kind of this, this idea, and, and, and the closest I came, say, was these cluster fits. And there didn't seem to be a lot of study on it, to be honest. There seemed like even this journal was like a, a kind of very theoretical piece. Say the, the one that I read, it, it had statistics and whatnot, but it was it was very theoretical. Um, and they were essentially stating that that, that you, you, you can have clusters of fits, but they tend to be more condensed. So it would be more like a cluster of fits in one day as opposed to a cluster of fits for months in a, at a time. So, so it was not quite the same thing. Although given the kind of loose nature, say, of this, and the theoretical nature, it, it, it did seem to extend to the possibility that it might have been possible. But like I say, that, that I'm not really, you know, medically educated. So I have literally no idea. This is, I'm just going from Google. So if, if you are, get in touch and let us know, you know. Um, it seems to me quite strange. Everything that I've always thought of as epilepsy and that it might be that I'm going on my own ignorance here and just talking about a stereotype, but I was always of the under the impression and it did point out in that paper that that one of the main characteristics of epilepsy is is the fact that it's so random and sporadic like that, that there is no kind of set clockwork you know it doesn't really work like that so so yeah um i'm not really sure about epilepsy i i suppose it doesn't have to have been epilepsy because just had fits but then I, I don't know again i say like my lack of medical knowledge really kind of limits me here but yeah i do think that perhaps it could have been something like that or i wonder if it could have been somewhere in between like if he had these fits and then and then somehow kind of also played on it as well and and turned them into a a, a bit of a fakery, so it was kind of half a dozen of one and six of the other. You know, like it was maybe he was kind of mashing the two theories together in reality. Don't really know because um, then, of course, the only other really real theory is you know was was he possessed by seven demons? Um, I don't really think he showed anything that, that that sort of displayed that he was. And a lot of people seem to think that he was faking it. There were accounts of him banging his head on the floor, but he wouldn't actually bang it on the floor. He would always take care to bang it onto someone's foot or something like that. So it was not quite the blow. And, you know, the fact that he supposedly closed his eyes, but sometimes he would like peep. And, and other times... He would answer questions and things. So I, I, I don't know. It, it doesn't sound particularly real to me. But at the same time, he had all the religious people on. So is it just the fact that the skeptics make it sound so base that, you know, in their descriptions, in the same way that the religious people make it sound so dramatic in their tellings, do the skeptics make it? almost the opposite you know do they do they go to the opposite extreme and tell it in a way that leads us to kind of immediately agree with them obviously they're, they're, they're both going to have had their biases because say that that's sort of the really interesting part of the whole story for me is the politic behind it all you know the way that the wesleyan church or the methodist church or whatever was uh the wesleyan philosophy rather and the, the methodist church was kind of fracturing from the Anglican Church and and the it was challenging kind of the, the establishment there and 
and all this kind of stuff. That that for me was quite interesting, and um, the stakes were pretty high. I would say so. Yeah, it was it was a really interesting case. Um, if if you do have any knowledge of, say, like fits and things like that, do get in touch. Let us know. Um, if let me know your thoughts as well. You know, I know that I've done positions before, and every time I tend to get emails from people who are are obviously much more religious than I. Um, and, and and they sort of always slag me off and tell me that I'm being too sceptical and, and rah, rah, rah. Um, and, and that's fair, I, I think. I I, I, um, I probably am quite sceptical in these cases because because of my lack of religious upbringing. But, you know, it, it, if you do want to get in touch and tell me I'm wrong and, and, and tell me to stop being so sceptical, again, like, help yourself. Please do so. I'm, I'm always willing uh, to have my mind changed so yeah thanks very much for listening like i said at the start of the episode we're, we're kind of coming on the run up to christmas now so as always i'm going to be taking the majority of december off i think the the last episode before christmas will be in the first week of december and then i'll, I'll be taking the month of december off for the which is like my kind of annual holiday i guess because my actual job takes over but in that time, of course, I will release the bonus episode. So if you've got stories, do get them into me. Um, Say so you've got plenty of time for the deadline and I will remind everyone closer to the date. But I thought I'd start sort of pushing it now as there's only going to be like a couple more episodes after this one. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, go back, uh, listen to the Christmas campfire episodes and you'll get a pretty good idea of the things we're looking for. Um, they're great episodes and a lot of fun and I really enjoy them. Every communal episode I really enjoy making. So if you enjoyed it, please share it around all the social media stuff. We're on all social media if you want to follow. Um, and you can get in touch with me through social media as well on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. The, the easiest way for me to tell you is just go to darkhistories.com. You'll find everything there. You can also contact me through that website, either via voice message or email. And you can also find ways of supporting if you'd like to do that. If you would like to support, it would be greatly received, especially in this break, I'm going to be doing hopefully my final upgrades uh, to equipment, which, well, I say that, everyone's got to have goals, haven't they? But, you know, realistic upgrades, I, I guess I should say, this, this Christmas. So, yeah, the support is greatly received. So thanks very much for listening anyway. I hope you'll have a wonderful couple of weeks. Stay healthy, stay warm if you're in the cold part of the world because it's definitely getting colder now. It's definitely heading towards winter, right? So yeah, stay warm. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks very much. Cheers. Sleep tight.